I have my work cut out for me this morning, and it has nothing particularly to do with any one of us. It's not anybody's fault. It's just a product of living in the 21st century. I've been reading a book called, well, actually, even that part is not true. I have been listening to a book, <laughs> and, and that kind of feeds into the problem that the book describes. The book is entitled Attention Span. And it is written by one of uh, America's premier psychologists, and the, her life's work has been attention span and the different kinds of attention that the human brain is capable of giving to different kinds of things depending on what's happening. She studied this for years, and they've gone from very simple methods like sitting in a room with a stopwatch timing people as they go through their workday to using really adept technology and sensors on computer monitors so that they can literally see and record how people interact with their day. Here's the most alarming part and what gives me a lot of work to do and will challenge you a little bit cognitively as well. According to this doctor, the average attention span now because of screens, when people are at work and paying attention to a screen as so many of us are, the average attention span has now been reduced to 45 seconds. And for you heavy users, it's about half of that. And that creates a little bit of a challenge. Because today, we're going to open up a Bible. Some of you are going to do it on a screen, and your attention span will be diverted, perhaps, <laughs> when your goofy cousin starts sending you messages from Peoria or whatever else is happening on your screen. I'm going to read to you, and I'd love for you to open your Bibles in John chapter 1. And I want you to notice something in the text once you get there in John chapter 1. If you're not very familiar with the Bible, let me orient you to where we are. There are four Gospels in the Bible, meaning four accounts of the life of Jesus. Each are written from a different perspective. Each are unique, but John is the most singular and different of the four. John, you see, is an eyewitness of the events he records, and not only is he an eyewitness as the gospel of John unfolds, you come to learn that John was a close personal friend of Jesus. He's described in the gospel he himself wrote as the one of the disciple who Jesus loved. It is John who is beside Jesus at the Last Supper who first hears the word that not only are apostles sitting there, a betrayer is sitting, a betrayer, a traitor is sitting among them. His name, of course, famous Judas Iscariot. John set out, as he's about to tell you, to carefully record what he himself knew and heard about Jesus. And if you look on the page or scroll down your screen, you'll notice that the first 18 verses sort of sit alone. There's a good reason for that. Bible students have called this part of John's gospel from verse 1 through verse 18 the prologue. And that means the word that is said before. John chapter 1, verse 19, draws you into the action. We were there last Sunday if you were able to join us, and there we meet John the Baptist, an entirely different person, not John the gospel writer, but a different person, a relative of Jesus born a few months before Jesus who has been sent ahead of Jesus to prepare people for his arrival. 
The action really begins in John chapter 1, verse 19. But John wants to tell you something in the prologue in these first 18 verses that may be some of the most profound in the entire Bible. There might not be another section in all four Gospels that are as important, as profound, as beautifully and carefully written as John chapter 1, verse 1 through 18. I'm going to read it aloud, and I just want to invite you to do what I've tried to do all week as I do every week, and just push the distractions out, and when you feel your focus beginning to wander, to fasten it again onto what John is trying to tell you. The prologue is there for a good reason. It is the point of view of Jesus' arrival on earth, an announcement of Jesus' identity, a preview of all that Jesus will say and do in the first 18 verses of a 21-chapter book. As you read through the prologue, you're going to see that in spite of who Jesus is, when he arrives among the humanity that John tells us he made, he's rejected. And the prologue, these first 18 verses, are really sort of an outline a literary anticipation of everything that follows. In the first 13, verse, uh, 13 chapters of John's gospel, or rather the first 12 chapters of John's gospel, you're going to see Jesus rejected. In spite of his miracles, in spite of his teaching, in spite of his brilliant, flawless character, so much so that in John chapter 8, he tells people who hate him, who of you accuses me of sin? And they're silent. In the first 12 chapters, you're going to see the rejection of Jesus. From chapter 13 through chapter 21, the end of the gospel, you're going to see Jesus, who calls himself the good shepherd in John chapter 10, live life with his flock and for his flock. You're going to see how he deals with people who actually have the grace and the faith to believe him. This is John's Christmas message seen from the point of view of heaven. This is what John wants you to know about Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh 
and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Biblical literature simply doesn't get better than that. You're standing on a mountaintop hearing the very will and the nature of God. And here's what I want you to hear on the front side. It's for you. This is history. John takes pains by naming people and places, by being very careful about locations and naming people not only by their names, but by their families and by their histories. He wants you to know, as a reader 2,000 years after his writing, that he is telling you something that actually happened. This is not mere literature. It's a masterpiece of literature, but it's more than that. There are all kinds of great stories told in the world. This story is actually history. It actually happened, and John experienced it as an eyewitness. And if you read carefully and read, I'm always inviting Christians to read with imagination, not to make things up, but to try to see if they can feel and experience what the writer is trying to convey, you can see John's own amazement. Because John was a commercial fisherman. John was almost certainly a religious washout, someone who never even started or washed out at some point during the rabbinical process. He was a commercial fisherman working the Sea of Galilee with his family, meaning to be a religious person, a spiritual leader, a deep thinker regarding the Scriptures was either never on the table or not within his capacity. But John met Jesus, and Jesus changed his life. Jesus called him away from the nets and away from his family to follow Jesus. And what John witnessed there, he's giving you in the preview, in the prologue to his gospel, he's going to say things like this. An ordinary man, once we saw the word, the word that became flesh, we saw his glory. What John has to tell you for all of the depth of his writing and for the literary and prowess and the powerful imagery that John is going to convey, his message is actually simple. And I want to be simple and I want to be clear so that you can understand John's Christmas message. What is he telling us? First and most importantly and most controversially, John is telling us this, Jesus is God. John chapter 1 verse 1, you can't miss it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word, what does it say? If that wasn't clear enough, he says he was in the beginning with God. In verse 18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Now, this choice of using the word, word, was very, 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 very purposeful. John, for his Hebrew writers, 
for his Hebrew readers is evoking the first pages of their Bible, the Hebrew Scriptures. Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The way the Bible tells us the universe came into existence is at a time unknown to us, at a time of God's own choice, God began to speak. And light appeared, and all of the things that we know as the universe around us began to appear. John takes us back to that moment and speaks not only of creation, but of the Creator. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Here's His deity in His actions, in the things that Jesus does and did. Verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. How does John explain the deity of Jesus? He names him clearly as God in the very first verse of his gospel. And I won't get into the technicalities of it, but suffice it to say, the way John, a Jewish man from a commercial fishing family who wrote in Koine Greek, the Greek of 2,000 years ago, John uses every literary and grammatical advice available to him in the Greek of his day to make it clear to the reader what he's saying. The word the one who made everything, the one who was life, the one who gave life, the one who lights up the world, the one who is rejected by the world but is not overcome or destroyed by it, that person, named first as the Word, identified only at the end as Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he is God himself. If John had the capacity in his day of using bold font and italics and blowing up the font to size 72, he would have done it. Grammatically, it's that plain. The words he chose, the simplicity of the verbs, the very order of the words is a shout to the reader, I'm going to tell you the story of God. Jesus was God, and I met him, and I knew him, and I saw him. The first thing you need to understand is that the word I'm speaking of, the one who was with the Father, the one who is God himself, Jesus, Jesus is God. And the verses that follow from verses 3 through 5 speak of things that only God can do. Jesus is the creator of the universe. Jesus is life, and Jesus is light. Look at verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus is not the crown of creation. He's the creator. He's not the best thing that God ever made. He is God himself making. Verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Now he begins to anticipate what's going to happen to Jesus once he arrives on earth. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. That's John's way of telling you the Christmas story. 
Matthew and Luke are going to take you down into the dirt and let you hear the songs and meet the people around the birth of Jesus. John has a higher view. He has the heavenly view. He's going to tell you the one who was life, the one who was light, the one that was unmade himself because he's the creator, the one that made everything that is because everything that exists in the universe exists because he made it. He was coming into the world. Verse 9, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Here comes a beautiful opportunity for us, for you. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Not only is Jesus the creator, not only is he the life and the light of the world, he is, John says, the savior of all who receive him. He's anticipating the clash that the rest of the chapters are going to narrate. In the very next chapter, in John chapter 2, already there's misunderstanding and conflict around Jesus. In John chapter 3, Nicodemus, a famously religious man, a leader of the Jewish religion, came to Jesus by night, afraid evidently to come to him by day, and asked him, who are you? And Jesus opens up his mind, his heart, and the scriptures and points Nicodemus to himself as the one savior of the world. In John chapter 4, you're going to discover that Jesus meets a Samaritan woman, an outcast in her own society and someone who was ethnically hated by Jews, but he is going to present himself and himself alone as someone who is willing to listen to her and love her and give her salvation and forgiveness of the sins that she herself was painfully aware of. She's going to run away from the well and tell the men of the village because they were likely the only ones who would speak to her, say, come meet a man who told me everything about myself. The conflict is on, and John here is only anticipating us, but he's telling you something stunning that he's going to spend the rest of his gospel explaining. That though Jesus is life and has life and gives life, and Jesus is not an illuminated teacher, as there have been some in the world's history. No, Jesus is not an illuminated thinker. He is light himself. He is coming into the world, John says. John chapter 1, verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not, what's it say? Know him. And that's still true today. 2,000 years later. The one who made the universe, and I don't know really how to speak of this because it's hard to imagine this, but you can see Jesus in his humanity as his ministry is chronicled on earth, marveling at the hardness of people's hearts and marveling at their unbelief. The opportunity is thrown open to the whole world to Jesus' ethnic kin, to his own family, his own nation, and to the rest of the world. Verse 11, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, which is a very Jewish way of saying, who believed him fully, who believed in his character, who believed in the person he claimed himself to be, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That means that Jesus is the Savior 
alone of all who will receive him. What does that mean for us? Simple, controversial, narrow, a message that is increasingly hated in the West. This means Jesus is the one true God, mark this, not one among many. This language cannot be properly applied to any other person who ever lived. John puts his reader on alert from the very first words of his message that he is going to speak the good news of God himself, Jesus Christ. And this is a narrow and controversial and increasingly despised message, and for good reason. Most Buddhist thinking, for instance, is not really directed toward God. It's primarily an ethical system, system of rules of how to live well. Hinduism has a pantheon of gods so vast, so many different kinds of gods, all with different influences and personalities and character and protectorates that they number in the millions. For someone who is raised in and believes the faith of Hinduism, the challenge there is not to accept Jesus, but to discard everyone else in believing in Jesus rather than welcoming him as the latest in a long, long list of gods. Islam is more contemporary than Christianity. It came after Christianity, explicitly denied things that the gospel announces, such as the death of Jesus on a cross. It says that Muhammad was the final prophet of God, that the message of Jesus was lost and corrupted by those who heard it and cannot be reliably understood today. That's why we need the final prophet, the seal of the prophets, Muhammad, to tell us truly who God actually is. That means that this message, written by this fisherman who was an eyewitness of the things he describes, he's going to part company with a lot of people. He did it then, and he did it now. But the unequivocal, bold, loving invitation is the rejection and the controversy that always follows Jesus was there from the very beginning. He was the light of the world. He was the life of men. But the men he gave life to and the men he illuminated did not know him and receive him. But if anyone will, regardless of their history, regardless of their past, regardless of their sin, their shame, and their guilt, regardless of their previous spiritual beliefs, even if they have no spiritual beliefs, John chapter 1, verse 12, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That's John's first and the best and most controversial part of his Christmas message, Jesus is God. Then he tells the second part, which is what we celebrate at Christmas time. Number two, Jesus became a human being. John chapter 1, verse 11, begins to speak of his humanity, of his arrival, of his birth. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. In other words, this is God's initiative that has done all this. It's not so much that people have sought God and found God. No, God has come after them. God has sent his Son. How did he do that? Verse 14, this is the Christmas announcement. This is John's way of explaining the birth of Christ. And the Word became, what's it say? Flesh. 
Which word? The word, according to verse 1, that was in the beginning? The word who was with God? The word who was God? The word who has always been in the beginning with God? That same word became flesh. And John says, see if you can hear his amazement. This is what I mean by imagination. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we, John includes himself now as an eyewitness, we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. John the Baptist was physically older than Jesus, but as soon as he saw him, he knew Jesus had eternal life himself. He was life. He lived before John the Baptist was ever imagined, much less conceived. Jesus became a human being. The Christmas message of John's gospel is in verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The eternal word of God, who is God, who was always with the Father, he became flesh. In other words, to use the language of theologians, Jesus assumed a human nature. He always existed. He was life. He is life. He was light and he is light, but at a specific time in history. It's going to blow your mind, I promise, if you grasp it. Because it's hard to imagine it's anyone who always is. We all have beginnings. And every day I go in the mirror, I'm now every day closer to imagining not only my beginning, but my end. There are wrinkles and pains that weren't there just a few years ago. We all live bound by time. The announcement from John is that Jesus just is. So that takes a lot of faith. Yes, it does. So does the contrary option. Those who believe that there is no God, that there is no creator, believe simply that something has always been here that particles or energy or some unknown thing was either eternally there or was produced sometime at a point in time where nobody can understand it, and then it all came together in something scientists call the singularity, and there was some kind of explosion when everything became so dense, and that stuff that was always there acted somehow, reacted with itself in the universe, and that stuff became everything else, including all of us. That takes just as much faith. I think it takes more. The announcement of the gospel is what every human heart seems to believe. Not that something was always there, but that someone was always there. And the announcement specifically is that that someone is the Father and the Son. John will tell you about the Holy Spirit later. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that creating Word that is life that is light, who made the very people who rejected him, John says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Here's the mind-blowing part. What John is telling you and announcing to you as good news for you is that Jesus has always existed because he is God himself, but without changing altering or affecting his deity in any way at a specific time 
Jesus, whose nature and identity and reality is divine, is that of God himself, became a human being, took on flesh, and he wasn't pretending. The word became flesh, John says, and dwelt among us. The Greek language he uses here is that of setting up a tent. He came and he lived with us in bodily form for a brief time. We knew him in the flesh for a brief time. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. I've been for probably 10 years pondering John chapter 1, verse 14. I'm not trying to impress you. I'm not trying to say I sit on top of Edwards Hill and look out over creation and think deep thoughts. It just blows my mind that Jesus, who always has been, who is the someone who was always there and always is, at a specific time in history, became a human being. And here's the astonishing thing. He still is. God can't be killed, but a man can. God can't be tempted, but a man can. A man can bleed. A man can suffer. A man can die. John saw every bit of that. He was closest to Jesus than anyone else of the disciples in the night of his betrayal and a witness to his death. It was to John who Jesus said from the cross, using a very Jewish expression, take care of my mother. Because the word became flesh in the ordinary way. The word became flesh the way you and I became flesh. The Son of God was conceived in a human woman and born in an ordinary human way among blood and tears and pain and fear until Joseph and Mary somehow discover that everything's going to be okay and that the baby's fine and he's breathing and crying and oh boy, does he have a set of lungs on him? And now it's our task to shelter him and care for him and protect him from this cold and he needs to be fed he needs to be fed, Joseph. Ordinary human being. So ordinary, so real, that John watched him die, and Thomas the disciple, who earned because of his skepticism a terrible nickname that will follow him forever until we meet him and probably apologize to him, doubting Thomas, knew that the death of the flesh of the Son of God was so real that Thomas said, I'll believe it when I see him. I saw how they killed him. All need to see the wounds. And right at the end of John's Gospel, in John chapter 20, you're going to discover that Jesus shows up with all the love and the patience that always characterized him and said, Thomas, I'm paraphrasing, but the message is real and true and clear. Thomas, come over here. Look at the wounds. Don't doubt. Believe. Remember what Thomas said? My Lord and my God. This is the Word of God, the eternal Word of God who became flesh. He's a real man. When he's in the manger, in other words, he's not looking up at the universe he made and pretending to be a baby. The divine nature has taken 
on also added, assumed a human nature so that Jesus can be tempted as you are tempted, so that Jesus can suffer as you suffer, so that Jesus can face all of the solicitation, all of the attractiveness called the temptation of sin, and according to Hebrews, suffer temptation yet without sin, tempted in all ways as we are yet without sin. This all is for you, and it means a couple of things. It means, number one, that God can be known. Look in verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. You want to know who God is? Listen to the words of Jesus. You want to know what God does? Watch what Jesus does. You want to know how God thinks? Hear the thoughts of Jesus. You want to know God's plans, desires, purposes? Listen to Jesus. John chapter 1, verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. I love the way the New American Standard Bible explains that, translates that verse. It says, He has explained Him, because that's what words do. I'm using a lot of words, maybe too many words in the opinion of some of you by now to try to make an ancient text understandable and come alive for you. The Father sent the Son and the Word became flesh for the very same reason, so that you would know and understand God. That's what it means. It also means this, that we can be forgiven and loved by God as our Father. All who did, to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. That's astonishing and important. So ultimately, God is not merely a lawgiver who commands people how to live. He is that, but he's more. He's something better. Because laws and lawmakers will always be with us, but the love of a father is irreplaceable. God is a king and a ruler and a lawgiver who welcomes people into his family, not by their obedience to his law, but by his love and his forgiveness to them after they sin. I see that in verse 16. John says, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. From the fullness of who Jesus, the incarnate word of God was, John says, we receive grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Listen to the good news. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. See that phrase, grace upon grace? That's a hard, abstract concept. We all know grace when we experience it. It means that you're treated far better than you deserve. It means that you're given love, money, blessing, privilege, opportunity, forgiveness that you do not deserve. But this phrase, grace upon grace, it's hard to visualize. But I heard a preacher years ago talk about one of his experiences, and it mirrors my own. I don't actually remember where I was. I was somewhere in Latin America with some people on some kind of mission trip, probably in the mountains of Chihuahua or near where I grew up, but I don't exactly remember. I only remember the clearing, and I only remember the water we were all hiking to find. We were told that if we went far enough into this mountainous wilderness, we would find a series of rivers and a waterfall, and when we came to it, it was astonishing. 
There were streams from places we could not see that were all coming together at a height far above us. And all of these different sources of water, all of these different little rivers and streams, all collected, all pooled into one mighty raging river that then fell off a cliff. I'm not good at estimating distance, but probably 100 feet. And as soon as we came through the clearing, we knew we had arrived because the mist hit us first. Just endless, cascading, seemingly eternal water. That's kind of the picture that comes to mind when I read grace upon grace. It's not a trickle. It's an overflow. It pours out of the very heart of God. Law was given through Moses. Grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. John was a good Jewish boy. He went to synagogue. He knew the law. He knew the Ten Commandments. Do you? Here's what they sound like. You shall not lie. Let me ask you, have you? It also says that you shall not covet. You shall not desire for yourself anything that belongs to anybody else. You ever done any of that? You ever seen somebody go by in a really nice car and maybe go five miles faster than you think is prudent and call him an idiot? I've done that more times than I'd like to admit. And if I'm really, really honest, I think a lot of that opinion is laced with a little bit of envy. Like the little boy that said, told his dad he wanted to grow up to be an idiot because every time his father saw a man in a nice car, he said, look at that idiot. <laughs> See, that joke works because the human heart is filled with lies. It is not abject black lies, little white lies, little self-serving narratives, the one or two things you're not quite clear about, you're not quite explicit about, you're misleading people, you're lying, you're coveting. Jesus comes along and says that the law says don't commit adultery, but if a man looks at a woman to lust for her in his heart, he's already committed adultery. No wonder John says the law was given through Moses. There's not a person in the world, regardless of how young, if you're old enough to sit in here and tolerate a sermon of this length, the passage of this depth, there's not a single person here who can stand in the sight of God and say to him, I'm just like you. You have nothing to forgive. You and me were the same kind of person. You're not. The law tells us all that, and we answer by disobeying it. The law was given through Moses. Here's John's Christmas message. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. That means that we can be forgiven and we can be loved by God as our Father. He's not merely a lawmaker. He is every bit of that. He tells you what's holy and right and good because that's who he is. But he also provides the way that lawbreakers can be welcomed into the family, not as pardoned prisoners, but as his own sons and daughters, which is far, far better. It's not only that he wipes the slate clean, it's that he calls you his child and gives you his name and welcomes you into his family. And that is why Jesus is the only savior and forgiver. The law can only condemn, but Jesus gives us grace upon grace. And John announces that because of this, someday evil will be overcome. The light shines in the darkness, he says in verse five, and the darkness has not overcome. 
the evil of my heart will someday be conquered and I'll be fully forgiven and fully saved and in the presence of God. If you will believe him, so can you be. The question is not whether any of this is true. The question is simply this. The real question is whether we believe the Christmas message. Here's how John ends his announcement of the gospel. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Right at the end of his gospel, before he tells you a personal, loving story of, John, of Jesus dealing with Peter, John sort of wraps up his gospel and tells you why he wrote it. Would you read this with me? John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. The Bible says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. He's saying, I could have told you more. I saw so much. I haven't told you the whole story. I've told you some of the things he did. I wrote some of these things down for you so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the one God anointed, the one God sent, that he is the very Son of God, and here's where it comes for us, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Jesus is not just a better set of values. Jesus is life. Jesus is not just another good teacher. He is the unique and only and eternal and creating Son of God, the life and the light of people who rejected him, who came among them, faced all of our temptations, died for our sins because we couldn't keep the law, and now stands because he is alive, ready and offering now to you the same eternal life he gave John the Apostle, that by believing you may have life in his name. Will you? Pray that you will. Can we pray together, please? If you'll give me one more minute, I want to speak to those of you who might be right on the edge of faith. If you're not certain, convinced, sure that Jesus is your Savior, I'm personally inviting you right now to turn away from your sin and simply believe him. It's a personal commitment. It's a commitment that involves you turning away from whatever you've been trusting to save yourself or live your life as best you can, agreeing with him that it's not enough and it never will be, and asking him to save you believing in his name is the way John expressed it. Believing in his character and his person. Giving up on yourself. Trusting him. If you'll do that, he's very much alive. We're not merely remembering someone who died never to live again. We're remembering and telling the good news of someone who's alive and willing to love you and welcome you into God's family right now if you'll turn to him and ask him. So I'm going to give you a moment to do so. Say, Jesus, I, I agree with you. I agree with the good news I've heard. I need grace upon grace. I've broken the law. I've sinned. I've lied. I've coveted. I've done all that stuff. I'm wrong. You're right. Please save me. Please forgive me. And Christian... This is how much you're loved. This was all for you. You weren't looking for it. 
God knew you needed it and did it all for you. This year, we're granted life and liberty again to remember it and celebrate it one more time. Rest in how much he loves you. Jesus, if there's anyone here who does not know you for sure, I pray that right now, as I pray, they would also pray. And they would ask you to forgive their sin and give them eternal life. For those of us, Lord, who have been following you for longer, let us rest in a time that can be filled with so many unmet hopes and expectations when we are disappointed or hurt in some way in this season. Let us remember how deeply we are loved, how near you are, how much you have done for us, and how far you came for us. I pray that in Jesus' name. Crosspoint says, 